I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And welcome to part one of our three-part episode on the Eagles saga. Yes. Now, ordinarily, we present a fairly straightforward face-off, but this episode's more like a battle royale with multiple adversaries, multiple alliances, and enough spite and bile to torpedo one of the most successful bands in history. Uh, today, we're going to focus on the first part of the Eagles' career, which saw the departure of two of the band's founding members, the original producer, Glenn Johns, and a feud with the preeminent rock magazine in the country. I got to say, as much as I love the Eagles' songs, I might love their story even more than their music. I think that this whole series has kind of been building to this episode, I think. Yes, I'm reminded of the profound words of Joe Walsh in the classic documentary, The History of the Eagles. <laughs> as you live your life, it appears to be anarchy and chaos. And later, when you look back at it, it looks like a finely crafted novel. How, how's that for a Joe Walsh impression? I'm, I'm incredible. I'm I've been wor- wow. I've been workshopping that. We got that. Joe. Yeah, I've been workshopping that for a while. That quote to me is the eagle story in a nutshell. All of this crazy stuff happened, and in retrospect, it seems like this grand Shakespearean saga. You have big egos, cocaine, greed, cocaine, power struggles, cocaine, bitter breakups, cocaine, and have I mentioned cocaine yet, Jordan? Uh, What I love about the Eagles story is that it's not really just a story about one band. It's really a microcosm of how the music industry, Los Angeles, and even America overall, changed from the late 60s to the early 80s, from the idealism of the hippie era to the self-interest of the yuppie age. I really believe that centuries from now, historians will study this band in order to understand the moral and ethical collapse of the United States in the second half of the 20th century. 
And I believe we're starting that work with this series, Jay. It's important work. And you're right. I mean, we've seen blood feuds before. We've seen, especially feuds among family members. We've seen brutal rap diss tracks. We've seen lengthy and costly legal spats. But I don't think there's been a more cutthroat musical outfit than the Eagles. Like, it's almost like an episode of Survivor. I mean, you got Don Henley and Glenn Fry, and they have blown through a truly impressive number of bandmates and associates. And I'm consistently impressed that their well-documented internal strife hasn't completely undermined their, you know, comparatively laid-back musical legacy of peaceful, easy feelings. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that several members of the Eagles have checked into the band and proven that you can, in fact, leave, even when it's not of your own volition. <laughs> Little Hotel California reference there for you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We have so much to explore and savor here. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. You got to start with Glenn Fry, the original ringleader. Uh, the Eagles were initially his vision and fueled by his ambition. And he was born and raised in Detroit, where his early piano lessons were subverted in the early rock and roll ventures after seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, like so many of his generation. And one of his earliest public appearances was at a frat party when he marched up to the party band playing and demanded that they play Satisfaction. And then he commandeered the lead vocal spot, which I feel like is pretty indicative of a character we're dealing with, no? Yeah, Glenn did not take it easy. <laughs> he, he's and he, he had a taste for the spotlight. He liked it. Uh, he played with a few local R&B bands with great 60s names, groups with names like The Mushrooms and The Heavy Metal Kids. Uh, but he eventually fell into the wing of a slightly older Detroit musician named Bob Seger. And you can hear him singing on Bob Seger's Ramblin' Gamblin' Man in the background. And he almost joined Seeger's band as a bassist, but his plan was thwarted when his mother caught him smoking pot and I guess put the, the kibosh on that whole plan of him joining uh, Seeger's band. But Seeger became an important mentor for young Glenn because he really encouraged him to, to start writing his own music. You know, after the Beatles, that was really the way that you made your name as a musician, that you had to write your own material too. And so uh, Seeger really uh, gave him important encouragement as a young musician. So by 1968, Glenn moves from Detroit to Los Angeles, like so many musicians of his generation. And the first guy he meets in L.A. is J.D. Souther. Now, J.D. to me is like one of the coolest guys in the orbit of the Eagles. You know, he seems really smart, laid back Texas guy. He dated like Linda Ronstadt for a couple years, which to me makes you a god just by itself. <laughs> he was like a really good songwriter. I, I happen to be a fan of his self-titled solo debut, which came out around the time of the first Eagles record. But J.D. never really became a star. He was more of like a background figure in the Eagles story. He ended up being a core songwriting contributor to the band. He was a big part of hits like New Kid in Town and Best of My Love and a bunch of other songs. And it's interesting to me that he was like never like a member of the Eagles. And I wonder if on some level he was just smart enough to like stay out of this mess. You know, that he knew maybe he had a premonition that like this was going to be just like a snake pit, and maybe he'd be better off on the periphery where he could, you know, get the benefits of associating with these guys and their status as well. Song as, publishing. Exactly. All the money that he made from contributing to Eagle songs, but he wouldn't have to deal with like a lot of the bullshit of this band. But I'm getting ahead of myself with that. <laughs> you know, getting back into, I guess, the timeline here. Around 1970, Glenn and Don, they put out a record under the name Long Branch Petty Whistle, which is this folk rock duo, and I think can be fairly described as like a rough draft for the Eagles. You know, it has that, again, that laid-back country rock sound, but the songs aren't quite there. And for Glenn to get to where he needs to go, he's going to need to find another partner in addition to JD. And luckily, he soon meets another guy from Texas, 
named Don Henley. Don Henley was born in Linden, northeastern Texas, the birthplace of T-Bone Walker and Scott Joplin, great musical legacy. Uh, Don got to start playing Dixieland jazz, and while he was a student at North Texas State, he was in a band called Felicity, which I don't know if you've heard, it's really kind of interesting. You can hear it on YouTube. They released a single in 1967 uh, I think one of Don Henley's first songs he ever wrote called I'll Try It, and the B-side's called Hurtin', and you can hear it's the unmistakable voice of Don Henley, and it's kind of cool. It's got this, like, young rascals question mark in the Mysterians vibe to it with, like, weird, like, Farfisa organ and a fuzz guitar. It's pretty interesting. After they graduated college, they morphed into sort of more of a country-flavored group called Shiloh. Now, Shiloh, they end up moving to Los Angeles at the invite of Kenny Rogers, and yes, it is the Kenny Rogers the one that we all know, the the gambler, the fast food chicken magnate. And uh, <laughs> at this time, Kenny was in a band called The First Edition, which you might know from their song, Just Checked In to See What Condition My Condition Was In, which I feel like most like modern audiences know because that song's in The Big Lebowski, which is kind of funny to me because we all know how Jeff Lebowski feels about the Eagles. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting wrinkle in this story. But anyway, Kenny Rogers invites Shiloh to come out to Los Angeles. He produces their self-titled debut, which comes out in 1970. And it's similar to the Long Branch Penny Whistle situation where it's this country rock band. It has this you know kind of hippie vibe. And you can hear the seeds of the Eagles in that band. But, you know, it's not quite slick enough. The songs aren't there. The lead single from that record was called Simple Little Down Home Rock and Roll Love Song for Rosie, which... Uh, rolls off the tongue. Just rolls off the tongue. And you can, you can see you know, the contrast between something like that and songs like Take It Easy, Witchy Woman, these very simple, straightforward songs that you feel like you know like the first time you hear them. So both Don and Glenn, they're sort of, again, like in rough draft versions of the band that they're going to form together at this point. And both of their bands are on the rocks in, in the early 70s. And, and Don would recall hanging out at the Troubadour Club, which, you know, the notorious musician hangout on Santa Monica Boulevard, but was the launching pad for so many Laurel Canyon acts in the late 60s and early 70s. And to hear Don tell it, he was just a sort of sad figure just hanging out at this club, lacking a band and really with no direction. He said he didn't know anybody, and he just was there by himself and kind of pathetic. And Glenn Fry came over one night, invited him over to his table and bought him a beer and just kind of said, you know, hey, what's going on? And they knew each other. I think both uh, Long Branch, Penny Whistle, and Shiloh were on a small label called Amos Records. So they were probably on, like, nodding acquaintance level to each other. Uh, but they got to talking this one night, and it came out that both their bands were on the rocks, and uh, Long Branch, Penny Whistle were splitting up, and so was Shiloh. And uh, Glenn was sort of the man with the plan. Don would always say he kind of knew all the industry figures, if not personally. He knew of them, and he knew the right people to talk to. He was a lot more, a lot better at networking than Don was at this time. And Glenn's talking about how he has inroads with Linda Ronstadt, who's about to go on tour and needed a backing band. So they go on tour with her, making uh, 200 bucks a week while they kind of get their own musical project together. Now, when they're on this tour, all the guys in the band, they end up sharing hotel rooms in order to save money. So Glenn and Don end up rooming together on this tour. And this is like where they really start to bond. And, you know, looking back, they don't really have a lot in common. You look at Glenn Fry. He's this guy from Michigan. He's very energetic. He's kind of like a jock. I mean, it, certainly in terms of how he carries himself. It's more of like a jock-type stature, I think, that he has. He's very aggressive, very forward. Whereas Don, you know, he is the sensitive literature major. He's more introverted. And it really is a case of, like, the quiet guy drawing people in while, like, the loudmouth <laughs> kind of repels people. Like, there was... 
this famous quote where someone described Don Henley at this time having charisma and Glenn Fry having care isn't ma, which is like <laughs> brutal, pretty brutal. I think what united these guys is that they were both ambitious. I mean, Glenn was, I think, more sort of upfront about it. But, you know, Don also, I think, was just as, as ambitious as Glenn. And I think they saw in each other that together, maybe we can form a band that will go the distance. And I think to understand that, you really have to look at the context of the times. Because, you know, Don and Glenn, they came out of the 1960s, but I think they had like a post 60s sensibility and that they were influenced by seeing what had worked and what didn't work in the previous generation of bands. You know, they were aware of the Flying Burrito Brothers and Poco and Dillard and Clark, all of these like, you know, brilliant LA based country rock bands that had just tons of talent, but ultimately like they didn't have the professionalism or the focus or the drive to go the distance. Even Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, who were like the kingpins of Los Angeles in the early 70s, and if you don't know, they were also covered on this show in a multi-part series that you're going to want to check out if you haven't heard it yet. You know, even CSNY, I think they were hamstrung by not having a clearly defined hierarchy that kept the operation in line. And I think all that stuff ultimately influenced Don and Glenn as they were you know, conceptualizing like what they wanted their band to be. You know, they wanted to be in control. They wanted to have a consistent live show. They wanted to have, you know, catchy hit songs that would work on the radio. And above all, they wanted to make a shit ton of money. And, you know, they bonded over these shared ambitions. And at some point, they decided that, you know, we don't want to back up Linda Ronstadt anymore. We want to form our own band. Uh, which would have been a problem if Linda Ronstadt like wasn't the coolest woman on the planet. Oh, complete angel. They they tell Linda about their desire to go out on their own, and she not only agrees, but starts giving recommendations of guys that they should team up with to make this new band. So she's helping them along, and she uh, the first person she recommends is Bernie Ledden, who uh, had backed her, I think, on a previous tour, and he'd come through the Birds School of L.A. Rock, and he was playing with Gene Clark and Dillard and Clark, and more recently, he was playing with the Flying Burrito Brothers on Burrito Deluxe and their self-titled 1971 album. And he was a crucial figure in the burgeoning L.A. country rock scene because he played not only guitar, but pedal steel and banjo and mandolin and B-benders. He really had that country flair down. And then Linda also recommended another member of her backing band roster, Randy Meisner. And he was this bassist with this sky-high falsetto. And he came through the Buffalo Springfield School of L.A. Rock. He was playing in Poco with Richie Ferre and Jim Messina before joining uh, Ricky Nelson's group, the Stone Canyon Band. And the version of the story that I heard, although I've heard different versions, was that Linda arranged for Bernie and Randy to come back and back her for a show at Disneyland in July of 1971 just so that Don and Glenn could see what it was like playing with them and see how they gelled and... It gelled very well. That was the first line of the Eagles. So they ended up getting a deal with David Geffen on his label Asylum. And I think it's worth noting that like Bernie Ledden was the most forward with David Geffen at this point. Like he basically like walked into David Geffen's office and said, do you want us or not? And like Geffen did, like he could see the potential of this group. And I think it, that speaks to how Bernie Ledden at this point seems like the most important member of the band in a way. Like he had the best pedigree. He had played like with Graham Parsons. He had played in the Birds. You know, he was a connection to that 60s L.A. rock scene that the Eagles were coming from. So Geffen signs the Eagles and he sends them off to Aspen to basically just like play in bars and, and get their act together. And by the way, we're going to be talking a lot more about David Geffen and his relationship with the Eagles in a future episode which I'm very excited to do. I think David Geffen is a fascinating character. 
and all the shenanigans with him and Irving Azoff and like him telling Don Henley that I'd rather die than let you fuck me. Like that great moment. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to spill all the beans of that episode. There's a lot to get into there, but there's a lot there. Uh, for now, we're just going to kind of keep David Geffen in the background of the Eagles story. The Eagles are in Aspen and they're rehearsing and Glenn has the idea that he wants Glenn Johns to produce their first record. Now, who is Glenn Johns? Well, if you don't know who Glenn Johns is, you haven't looked at the liner notes of some of the biggest classic rock records of all time. This is the guy who worked with the Rolling Stones in the 60s. He worked with the Beatles. He produced Who's Next for the Who. He worked with Led Zeppelin on all their classic records. He's basically like Mr. Classic Rock, especially of like the British variety. So to be like a young band and to say, I want Glenn Johns to produce our record, it's a pretty ballsy thing to do, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I mean, especially, yeah, for these neophyte LA country rock guys. Also really interesting because his sort of sound is really nothing like what the the embryonic eagle sounds like, too. Like, it, it was definitely, it was an interesting choice. Yeah, I think it speaks to how Glenn probably had a different view of the eagles than what they actually were. I think he already thought of them as this, like, rock and roll machine, when in reality they were this, like, kind of pleasant country rock band. And when Glenn Johns comes out to Aspen to see them, that is his impression, basically, that he, he sees them playing... Uh, like in this Aspen bar and, you know, they're playing these sort of like lame Chuck Berry derived rockers and, you know, kind of like nice, but not especially distinguished, you know, country songs. And, you know, Glenn Johns later said, you know, I thought they were confused. Like Glenn Fry wanted to be in a rock band and Bernie Ledden, you know, was one of the greatest acoustic players in L.A. at that point. Uh, so he walked away and he wasn't all that impressed. David Geffen keeps pushing for Glenn Johns to give the Eagles another chance. So Glenn Johns hops back on a plane, goes, you know, from England to Los Angeles, and he's watching an Eagles rehearsal. And at first he's like feeling like he did in Aspen. He doesn't really hear anything that leads him to want to work with this band. And then during a break, they end up harmonizing on this uh, Randy Reiser song called Take the Devil. And when Glenn Johns hears those like L.A. country rock harmonies, that's when it all clicks into place for him. And that's when he decides that he's going to produce this band. And I think like from his perspective, he really did look at them as like an extension of the Flying Burrito Brothers or even like of the Beach Boys. I mean, I think that in terms of like the L.A. rock lineage, I think the early Eagles were like a harmony band in the tradition of the Beach Boys and and even like the Birds to some degree. But this really does like set up like the first big feud of the Eagles story between the Eagles and I guess mainly Glenn Fry and Glenn Johns. Because, you know, Glenn Johns is going to produce that first record. They're going to have some hits on it. But as they progress on like the next the record after that and the third record, there's going to be this tension between how Glenn Johns sees them, which is as this country rock band, and how Glenn Fry wants this band to be, which is like more of like a rock band. Right, and Glenn Johns, as you mentioned, he's a very big deal. And he has very specific ways that he goes about producing records. And he likes his control. And why not? Because... Because it works. It clearly works. And uh, the band really didn't want to be dictated to in such a strict way. I mean, Don Henley talks about how he didn't agree with how Glenn was miking his drums up. He, he miked them like he was miking John Bonham. And Don wanted every single individual drum on the kit miked individually so you could get a better control on the mix. And Glenn would say, you know, you want it louder, play louder, which is what he'd say to Bonham. And then same with uh, with Glenn Fry. When he would sing, he would put this echo on Glenn's vocal, and Glenn hated it. And 
uh, Glenn Johns was saying, well, that's my trademark. Like that's, that's, you want me to produce your record. That's how I like my vocals to sound. That's what I do. And so, and they, they really, I mean, not only were they disagreeing with sort of broad strokes, like this is the kind of band we want to do, but just individual nuts and bolts, how they put the songs together. They were really butting heads at, at every turn. And also, you know, a very early seventies rock band problem too. Glenn had a really dim view of, uh, of of drinking and drug taking in the studio. I mean, this was he's well into his career at this point, and he'd lost many, many, many hours and days to you know Keith Richards and so many other rock and rollers, just you know being being stoned out of their mind and being unable to work. So we had a very strict no drugs policy in the studio, which really pissed off Glenn Fry in particular. He just thought he was like a school marm. I think that was the word he used. I mean, they just really were, were in very different planes. Their debut album, self-titled debut, was, you know, a decent-sized success when it was released in 1972. It peaked at number 22, and I think eventually went platinum, and it had Take It Easy and Witchy Woman and Peaceful Easy Feeling. Uh, to me, this album is more unified than almost any that they would do later on. I mean, all four members contributed songs. All four members took lead vocals. Randy Meisner sung more than Don Henley on this record, which is weird to think of now. But uh, it's actually one of my favorite albums of theirs. Yeah, it really is like, you know, the platonic ideal of like the Eagles being a band. Like you said, each member contributing more or less equally, which is going to be less and less the case, of course, as the Eagles career progresses in the 70s. I want to do like one quick side note about Take It Easy. You know, of course, that's like one of the classic Eagles songs. And it's my understanding that like Jackson Brown like wrote the music, the melody, and almost all of the lyrics, save for one line, which is "It's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford, slowing down to take a look at me." Like apparently, like Glenn Fry wrote that lyric, and for that he got a co-write, which I guess is normal for songwriting. I mean, to me, like I'm not a songwriter. I I feel like that seems like a little weird that Glenn Fry gets equal credit for this song, even though it was basically a Jackson Brown song. But I feel like this will become a major theme for the Eagles you know, as their career unfolds, like where someone outside of the band brings in a song and Don and Glenn make like a relatively minor addition and voila, they get a piece of the publishing. You know, like they really seem like, you know, like glory hogs in a way. They're on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. They're very on top of that. It's very canny, you know, even though it seems like a little (laughs) underhanded to me. Uh, But anyway, after the debut and all those hit singles, they decide on the sophomore record to do what many bands do, which is to make their art album. And in the Eagles' case, it's a cowboy concept record called Desperado. I actually think this is, like, one of their best albums. Like, Eagles, I think they generally made, like, pretty spotty LPs. But this one and later Hotel California, for me, hold together the best as, like, complete statements. You know, like Hotel California, Desperado is centered on an epic title track sung by Don Henley, where he's really, I think, coming into his own as, like, the voice of the band on that song. Also, like Hotel California, it's a thinly vialed commentary on the music industry, which in this case, you know, the concept of the record is that like rock stars of the 70s are like the outlaws of like the 19th century, uh, which apparently this was suggested by Glenn Fry. Though I wonder, like, did John Bon Jovi ultimately take that concept the farthest a decade later with Wanted Dead or Alive and Blaze of Glory? I mean, he did ride the steel horse, Jordan. With a loaded six-string on his back. What a line. What a song. Yeah, man. Eagles and Bon Jovi making the connection right there. I always thought it was really weird that, you know, after all the fuss about, you know, when they were making their first album with with Johns saying, you know, we are a rock and roll band. Don't try to make us into this this country-flavored group. That they went, they really leaned into this old West country rock thing on Desperado. I thought that was like, that was a, a choice I wouldn't have expected given how much they were playing, you know, those Chuck Berry riffs and stuff when they first met uh, Glenn Johns and Aspen. But 
also, on the flip side, like you said, it's a young band making their bid for, you know, mature, critical praise. I also really like the fact that the back cover shows them as playing dead while members of the law are standing over their, their bodies. And the members of the law are all their managers and executives and Glenn Johns himself. Yeah, man. Um, That's heavy shit. Yeah, not very subtle. My really interesting part about the making of the album was that Glenn, he liked this idea and he encouraged uh, Bernie Ledden to write musical linking themes to link the songs to really make it like a concept album. And it seems like at this time, the bond between Glenn Johns and, and Bernie Ledden was sort of the strongest, which is actually what started to drive a bit of a wedge between Bernie and the rest of the band. Uh, which happened more later as the band leaned more into the rock and roll sound, which wasn't really Bernie's forte, really. Yeah, and I think the other thing that really drove a wedge, certainly between the band and Glenn Johns, was that Desperado like wasn't a hit. You know, like in his uh, memoir Sound Man, Glenn Johns notes that like when a record does well, the artist takes the credit, and when it fails, it's the fault of the producer. And I feel like that's basically what happened with Glenn Johns and Desperado. I mean. It's a little strange now because, you know, people look back on that album and they, of course, remember the title track, which is one of the most iconic Eagles songs. There's also Tequila Sunrise on that record, which ended up, you know, on the Greatest Hits record, a very famous Eagles track. So it seems like it was a success, but like at the time, like it it, it wasn't really successful at all. I don't think it even broke like the top 40 on the album's chart. And I think that had a lot to do with like country rock in general, just being like a little played out by then, like you know, entering the mid-70s, that was like really the prime of arena rock. You know, like Led Zeppelin, The Who, Kiss, Aerosmith, Peter Frampton. And, you know, with Desperado, I think the Eagles were in danger of being sort of perceived as like like a fixture of like a bygone era. Like they were fading like a bit at this time. And it seems like Don and Glenn recognized that. You know, Glenn already wanted to be a rock band, but I think they were also starting to see, like, the financial necessity to, like, beef up a little bit and compete, like, with the big boys of arena rock. So this makes them less and less inclined to listen to Glenn Johns. And they go back to London to work on their third album, On the Border. And they really, they aren't interested in listening to them anymore for two reasons. I mean, one, the the success that they'd enjoyed to date really emboldened them, and they were less interested in, in kowtowing to what Glenn told them. I mean... Glenn would say, I think it was in his memoir, uh, they began to be opinionated and less insecure, and they wanted to have more input on how the records they made sounded, and they would fight him over things like vocal echo and drum sounds. So the success emboldened them, and then on the flip side, the failure of Desperado made them question Glenn John's choices even more as he continued to push him further into this, you know, harmony country rock realm. And, uh... In the History of the Eagles documentary, they really frame it as almost like a personal failing on Glenn's part. They're like, they were saying, you know, he'd been bombarded by loud rock and roll for so many years. And at this point in his life, he just wanted to be mellow and make mellow music and, you know, take it easy. And the famous quote from Glenn Johns at this time is, you know, you guys are not a rock and roll band. The Who are a rock and roll band and you are not that. And, you know, he's right. Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of the Eagles, certainly like like this lineup of the Eagles like wasn't really like a strong rock band. They had to add eventually, you know, Don Felder and especially Joe Walsh to have that arena rock just firepower, you know, that would enable them to to make that transition. But yeah, at this point, you know, they were still kind of on their way to getting to that point. So the Eagles, like they leave England, they go back to America, they they want to find a new producer. And they ended up having a meeting with this guy named Bill Simzik, who at that time was best known for, for working with Joe Walsh, who quite, I guess, 
fortuitously was also managed by Irving Azoff at that time. And they have this meeting with Bill and they ask two questions. They, they say, will you let us have input on how much echo you put on our records? And Bill says, yes. And they ask, will you put a mic on each drum so we can better control the mix? And Bill says yes to that too. And of course, this is all covered in the documentary. What isn't quite spelled out in that movie, but I think was also a plus for Bill Simzik, is that he had a much more permissive attitude about drugs and alcohol in the studio. And from here on out, Eagles productions are going to get more and more decadent and like also take a lot longer, longer. much, much longer, which kind of works for a while, but is going to end up derailing them in the future. But like for now, it's really cool. They're happy with Bill Simsick. I guess Bill Simsick called Glenn Johns before he took the job and asked for his blessing. And Glenn said, better you than me producing him. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think he was really all that sad to see the Eagles go either. No, no, Glenn, he had other things to do. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So... 
Now that the Eagles could rock out to their heart's content, they realize they have a logistical problem. Is that basically whenever Glenn Fry wanted to sing a rock and roll tune, he had to hand off lead guitar duties to Bertie Ledden, who was more of a country-based guitar player. And whenever one, they wanted to do country-tinged songs that Bernie sang, Glenn had to play lead guitar, and, you know, country guitar picking wasn't really his thing. So they realized that they needed a third guitarist. So they looked up Don Fingersfelder, this great, you know, virtuosic guitar player. And he came in to play lead on the On the Border track, Already Gone. And he assumed it was just, you know, a session. And then to his surprise, the next day, he was asked to join. And he also added a, a slide guitar in Good Day in Hell, too. Um, and he joined that next day and uh, sort of, you know, we'll get into this in the next episode, but sort of sowed the seeds for the band's uh, uh, destruction, I would say, a couple years later. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Felder, he ends up being like one of the most, uh, he is the bitterest rival, really, for Henley and Fry. And we're going to see that in our next episode. But in the short run, he was exactly what Fry was looking for. He was this southern rock guitar player in a style like, you know, you could liken him to like a Dwayne Allman or Eric Clapton. Like those were two of the big influences for Felder. And when he enters the band, I mean, this is like one of the like truly Shakespearean turns for me in this story because Don Felder and Bernie Ledden were friends. I mean, they both were from Gainesville, Florida, which is like a crazy fertile city for like rock and roll. Not only do you have Felder and Ledden, but that's also the home place of Tom Petty and Stephen Stills. Actually, like Don Felder was Tom Petty's guitar teacher, like when Petty was a kid. It's crazy, like how all these things come together. The narrative with Bernie Ledden is that he didn't like the rocked out sound that the Eagles were starting to embrace with songs like Already Gone. You know, this is a big theme of the documentary. It gets pounded time and again. And that does seem true up to a point, but like it kind of overlooks the fact that like Bernie Ledden had played rock and roll in his other bands. You know, Bernie himself said that he felt like this was an oversimplification of like his problems in the Eagles. He said, like, I played a Gibson Les Paul and I enjoyed rock and roll. That's evident from the early albums. And, you know, it's worth noting that like he wrote the guitar riff to Witchy Woman, which I think is like one of the coolest guitar riffs in the Eagles canon. So it's not like he was like just this country purist who couldn't play rock music at all. I think what was more the case with Ledden is that he was just like burned out by this like toxic atmosphere in the Eagles. And I'm sure he was also angry about his diminishing role in the band. I mean, like I said before, like he was kind of the man early on in the Eagles, at least in terms of his reputation as a player. You know, he had this great pedigree. I think that he was a big reason why Glenn Johns ultimately decided to produce them because he just had so much respect for his musicianship. And now, like on the third record, he wasn't even like a second or third banana in the band, you know. So I think he could feel that he was in a way being pushed out while he was also just feeling like a lot of discontent with just the vibe of this band. Tensions boiled over in October 1975 backstage during a gig at the Orange Bowl. Bernie, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, he was fried by this point. He had wanted to take some time off with the band, and uh, and that was not well received by Don and Glenn. Glenn is backstage talking animatedly about what they're going to do next, and he, he's getting all excited. And Bernie just, he, he can't take it anymore. He can't resist popping his ego by pouring a beer over Glenn's head and delivering the immortal line, you need to chill out, man. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, it seems like something from like American Pie or something. Like it seems like kind of quaint and adorable. He would later say, Bernie would say that he regretted this in later years. He would kind of have like a non-apology. So, oh yeah, that was a that was a very disrespectful thing to do. Something I'm not very proud of. Uh, but 
it pretty much marked his end, the end of his tenure in the yeah. band. I mean, he was replaced, you, I think, I, mu- like not long later by Joe Walsh. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you when you dump a beer on someone's head, that is like a resignation letter, you know, in, right. in beer form. <laughs> you know, there's no coming back from that. No. And, I mean, and this was, with his departure and when they got Joe Walsh in, I mean, the band's transformation from a harmony group into, like, a rock, or at least a rockier group, was more or less complete. And Glenn would say in the, in the documentary, maybe the vocals won't be quite as good, but boy, are we going to kick some ass. And uh, I guess to Bernie's <laughs> amusement, like, right after he uh, he was kicked out, the band did take a year off, which he always thought was, was very funny, just as he'd wanted. And, you know, the thing with Bernie Ledden is that of all the members of the Eagles, to me, he seems like the most content in his skin, at least in terms of like mm. his decision to like to leave the band. Because as we're going to see with some of the other members that were edged out of the Eagles, you know, there's a, like a lot of bitterness and jealousy and and, and discontent. But I, it seems like Ledin, you know, really felt like he did the right thing and he was happy in his decision. And of course, he also has the benefit of like still making tons of money from his involvement in the Eagles without actually having to be around Don Henley and Glenn Fry. Like he once <laughs> said, like, you know, I get royalties on that greatest hits record just like it was a new album. In a way, I'm still part of a band that goes platinum every year. So in a way, like Bernie Ledden, he ended up having the best of both worlds after he left the Eagles. Oh, totally. And then there's a part in Glenn, in, uh, in Don Felder's book where I guess in the in the early 2000s or late 90s or something. Bernie comes and like catches a show and goes backstage and says hi and like it's totally cool and chill and he like talks about kind of being jealous about how Bernie's at this like great point in his relationship with the guys in the band so yeah you're I think you're right I think of like almost everybody in the story he's the one who came out ahead yeah and they let and the Eagles like actually let Ledden play on their like 2013 tour the tour after the history of the Eagles documentary came out so it seems like whatever ill will you know existed at you know from the beer dumping incident it seemed like that was now water or beer suds under the bridge and they they were all cool by that point things are way less sunny for randy meisner and this whole part of the story makes me so sad the eagles next album one of these nights uh became the first number one record and it contained take it to the limit which contained randy's you know soaring falsetto at the end and it became just an instant staple in the band's set and it was it was their concert encore it was their big moment and uh, Randy really didn't want this big moment in the spotlight, you know? I mean, he was a really fundamentally a shy, humble guy, and just the pressure of having this solo spot really wore on him, and he started to dread it. Because for the most part, I mean, he was terrified that he wouldn't be able to hit this crazy high note at the end and let everyone down. And, you know, this was just the most obvious example of just the pressure that he was coping with being in this band. He really wasn't cut out to be in a, you know, a mega arena rock group. He was the beta man in a group of alphas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm sorry to keep quoting Joe Walsh from History of the Eagles, but, like, I love that scene where he says, Randy was an alpha. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, can you imagine being in this band? It's like being on, like, I mean, it's like a high school football team. Just, like, yeah, oh my the God, worst yeah. jocks in the world just torturing you, you know, and taking advantage of like your insecurity. You know, that's what this band was. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Randy was miserable. And I mean, just just, just the, the daily grind of the touring and all that made him miserable. And just the overbearing personalities of Don and Glenn. I always likened Randy to like Fredo in, uh, in in The Godfather. And, you know, and Glenn is sunny. He's like loud and quick tempered. And he's like nominally the leader and he's not afraid to look like an asshole. And then 
Don Henley is definitely Michael. He's just this like cold fury who who you know actually you know you you truly don't want to cross him. But Randy, I mean, confrontations are really hard for him. And, and there's some quote he gave where he says, you know, all I want to do is see five guys happy playing together, Ugh. and it just. It breaks your heart. Band, and, man. You know, and it, oh, yeah. And he, he would say, you know, as soon as the band started taking separate limos to gigs, all the camaraderie was lost. And, and you know, in addition to the strain of living out of a suitcase and he was coping with the collapse of his marriage, he coped by partying, really. Yeah, and this all comes to a head at a gig in Knoxville, Tennessee in June 1977. It's the Hotel California tour. They've been on the road for like 11 months at this point, so... Jesus. Everyone's pretty fried. And there's like different stories about like this incident that happened in Knoxville. According to Glenn and Don, like Randy apparently had been out late the night before with a bottle of vodka and a couple groupies and like his voice was shot. And according to Randy, he was having problems. He like had a bad case of the flu. And also, I guess his ulcer was acting up. By the way, everyone in this band had ulcers in the 70s. Like if you read biographies, like Don Glenn has an ulcer. Don Felder is like having stomach issues. You know, they're this huge band and like everyone is acting like, you know, they work for like a high powered like finance firm or something. You know, there's no joy to be had at all. Which they kind of did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in, in any event, like Randy Meisner, he doesn't feel well enough to tackle that high note and take it to the limit. So he asks for that song to be taken out of the set list. And Take It to the Limit, of course, was one of the biggest Eagles hits at this point. It's a song that the people in the audience love. So, you know, Glenn hears about this and he gets really angry. And like this incident is it's broken down in detail in the in the documentary. The one thing that's like not in the movie is that Glenn apparently called Randy Meisner a pussy. And like that is specifically like what set Randy Meisner off. Like Randy Meisner, this like mild mannered country rock dude, like one of the nicest people in any rock band. He actually gets angry enough to throw Glenn Fry against a wall and they start going at it. And like it's apparently like the scuffle got bad enough that like security guards like tried to intervene and like Don Henley get, like got between his bandmates and the security guys and said, stay out of this. This is personal and private, real fucking private. <laughs> That's my favorite quote. I think of the entire Eagles saga. Yeah, that was me imitating Glenn Fry, imitating Don Henley in the documentary. <laughs> yeah. So eventually they get separated, but like this, this fight ends up really kind of sealing Randy Beisner's fate in the band. Like he, he said later that he was basically like frozen out of the band for the rest of that tour. And, you know, he, he said like, no one was talking to me. They wouldn't hang out with me after shows. I was made an outcast in a band that I helped to start. And, uh, after the tour, uh, he exited the Eagles. And of course, the Eagles, they put out the requisite press release saying that Randy Meisner had exhaustion, which is code for, you know, whatever the case may be. Usually that there's some blowout that causes a band member to get fired. But he gets out of the band and they hire the other nicest man in rock, Timothy B. Schmidt, <laughs> to replace him. And it was a natural uh, hire to make because Timothy B. Schmidt had previously replaced Randy Meisner in the band Poco. And he also had like a similar voice and a very, very deferential personality. I mean, I think Timothy B. Schmidt, again, it, it would have been hard to find like a like a more sort of like laid back person than Randy Meisner. But somehow they found it with Timothy B. Schmidt. And Randy did join the group at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 1998. He attempted to not rejoin the band, but join them on stage when their 2008 tour came through L.A., but... But he was rebuffed, and he was quoted as saying, I didn't get much response. I thought it would be nice to sit in with Timothy B. Schmidt and sing Take It to the Limit, but they pretty much gave me a no in a roundabout way. I can't blame them. 
They have to keep the band the way it is. Oh, it's just, I can just hear his voice. And his story gets even sadder. I guess they finally, when uh, they were doing the History of the Eagles tour in 2013, they reached out to Randy to to join, like just as they did with Bernie Ledden. And he finally had his moment to rejoin. And he had some really serious health scare. After 36 years of waiting to rejoin this band, uh, he missed his moment. I I think he like choked on a piece of food and lost consciousness and was in a coma for a short time or something. Some like really, yeah, a coma was involved. And so he couldn't join the tour. And he also dealt with alcoholism and some mental health issues, including bipolar disorder. In, I think, 2015, he he threatened to shoot his wife and himself with an AK-47. Another time, he threatened to take, you know, all of his medication at once. I mean, really, really sad, scary stuff. He was placed under conservatorship for a time. And then his wife, I think, ended up getting killed in some freak accident when a rifle she was holding bumped up against a cabinet and discharged and killed her. I mean, just... All in all, Randy Meisner's later years have been pretty bleak. So, you know, big, big prayers for him. Oh, man. I feel like someone just pumped the brakes on this episode. Uh, and, and we're, we're stranded in Bummer Town. This is like the bleakest <laughs> it's thing that you could imagine. I mean, the, the Shakespearean twists keep turning up in this story. I can't believe it. I, I think we have to find a way to end this episode on a lighter note. So I think we should talk about the Rolling Stones softball match. That's this is like the most awkward uh, transition ever. It's like when you watch the news and there's like a plane crash and then they like segue to like a a visit to the it's like a puppy on a skateboard. Exactly, we're going to the zoo to look at some koala bears now. Um, But uh, (laughs) yeah, there's there was this famous softball match that took place between the Eagles and the writers of Rolling Stone in the late 70s, and it was basically like a way for the Eagles to vent their frustration about like how poorly they had been treated by rock critics in the 70s. You know, because I think a lot of critics, they looked at the Eagles, they, you know, they acknowledged that this was like a very popular band, but there was like this idea that like, these guys are too slick for their own good. You know, this is like soft rock, you know, there's no soul here. I think that the the biggest problem that rock critics probably had with the Eagles in the 70s is that they were like the jockiest band of the 70s. You know, in terms of how, totally. yeah, the, the way that they carried themselves and and the way that they like constantly competed and like really kind of front loaded that aspect of the band. I mean, I think you know, you look at the Stones or Zeppelin, the Who, any of the great rock bands. They were all competitive. They all wanted to be successful, but like they didn't talk about it as much. You know, they didn't like make that as much a part of their narrative. I think t- like to the, the degree that the Eagles did. You know, they just. But the Eagles were upfront about wanting to be successful, wanting to be the best. You know, they didn't care who knew it. And there was an arrogance about that, I think, that bothered a lot of people. There was also the fact that the Eagles actually played sports, too. And, like, they were big fans of playing softball, like, to release the tensions that they had on the road. You know, Glenn Fry said that if we can yell at each other on the baseball field, we don't do it in the studio, which actually proved not to be true. Isn't totally true. Yeah, like you know, <laughs> or else they didn't play enough softball, I guess. Uh, you know, to to avoid those studio arguments. But uh, I think Rolling Stone was like the biggest, you know, sort of target of ire for the Eagles because they were the most respected rock magazine. I think the Eagles, especially Don and Glenn, like secretly craved like their praise and their attention. And when they didn't get it, it made them angry. So that set up this epic softball game where the Eagles could finally get revenge on rock critics. I mean, it really started with a fairly minor thing in Rolling Stone. Uh, the writer Charles M. Young wrote in the Random Notes section, there was, he was talking about Joe Walsh's new solo album, and he wrote, The rest of the Eagles, on their first vacation in three years, seem more interested in finding a softball team they can beat. 
Having lost in recent weeks to teams fielded by Andrew Gold, Jimmy Buffett, employees of several San Francisco radio stations, and their own road crew. And I'm guessing that, you know, they weren't thrilled that Rolling Stone had publicized the fact that they'd lost to the thank you for being a friend guy. <laughs> Glenn wrote in, uh, what you have failed to mention is that the Eagles won two out of three games against Jimmy Buffett. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Uh, anytime you pencil-pushing desk jockeys want to put on your spikes, we'll kick your ass, too. And the challenge was accepted immediately. Now, I have to say that, like, Rolling Stone, like the rock writers there, I, I think that they were a little arrogant themselves in accepting this invitation. I mean, I'm a rock critic myself. I'm not in good shape. Every rock writer I know, <laughs> in poor shape. You know, if you were a jock, you wouldn't be a rock writer, you know? So they, I think, were set up to lose from the beginning. I think also... They underestimated how seriously the Eagles like took this game. You know, I think like the people at Rolling Stone, they probably looked at this as like a as a PR stunt, you know, something that they could take photos of and put in their magazine and, and have a good laugh about it. There was also uh the fundraising aspect of this, like the losing team was gonna pay like five thousand dollars to UNICEF, so it was for a good cause. But like when the Rolling Stone staff, they showed up at the game. It, was, it took place at uh, USC in May of 1978. And, like, the rock critics were presented as the villains, essentially, of this game. Like, the Eagles had loaded the stands with, like, celebrities. Like, Chevy Chase was there. Joni Mitchell was there. The governor of California at the time, Jerry Brown, was there. And they're all cheering for the Eagles. You know, because, look, in the eyes of the public, rock critics are always going to be less cool than rock stars. So you're going to cheer for the famous cool guys in the Eagles. Also, the Eagles showed up wearing metal cleats, which I think is kind of insane. You know, like when you slide into second, you might take out someone's leg. That draws blood. Exactly. And Jan Winter actually like yelled at Irving Azoff, like, hey, someone might get hurt. And Azoff uh, retorted, uh, do you think your writers ever think about that? So that pretty much set the tone there, that like the Eagles were going to wear metal cleats to get their revenge for all the snarky reviews that Rolling Stone writers and other rock critics had written of their records in the past. And uh, the Eagles ended up killing Rolling Stone. I think they won 15 to 8. Damn. That is bad. I, I guess uh, Henley and Fry wrote into the magazine a few weeks later. Uh, in the end, it was errors that cost Rolling Stone the game. Their first error was to call the Eagles sissies in random notes. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am 
the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Bernie Ledden and Randy Meisner first. Like I said before, you know, Bernie Ledden, while he's sort of forgotten now, I, I feel like in the early 70s, he was like the most famous and respected member of the Eagles, like as they got going with their debut record. And I, I really feel like he was probably the main reason why Glenn Johns decided to work with them. And he was also the most forceful about them getting a record deal with David Geffen. Randy Meisner was also like well-regarded, you know, as a former member of Poco. And after Don Henley, I think he was like the best singer in the band. I mean, like Take It to the Limit, that's a great vocal on that song. And it really is like one of my favorite Eagle songs of that era. So like when you look at these two guys together, I feel like, you know, for this era of the band, they really were essential in terms of like shoring up the Eagles country rock bonafides. Like this was a band that I think had a lot of hits because these two guys brought an element that like Don and Glenn didn't have. They might've had the songs, but like those guys really had like sort of, you know, the instrumental chops and integrity that they needed at that time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, overall, I think I prefer the the Bernie and Randy years. I mean, I really like this sort of the B-benders and the mandolins and the banjos and the dobos. I like that sound. And, you know, I could never deny that Joe Walsh, you know, is one of the great guitarists of all time. But I think I'm more of a bigger fan of the Eagles as the peaceful, easy-feeling, country rock-type group. And, you know, Bernie himself was a crucial architect of that sound with his time in Dillard and Clark and the Flying Burrito Brothers. I think that Bernie, like you said, was kind of their secret weapon in those early days because of his talent as a multi-instrumentalist. And he, he contributed great songs. I mean, Early Bird, 21. And then, yeah, Randy, I feel compelled to back up my uh, my soft-spoken, gentle bass-playing brethren here. I... Uh, I don't think the harmonies were ever as good after Randy left. And, you know, obviously Take It to the Limit was never the same. It was never the showstopper it was after Randy left. Uh, I think part of the, the, you know, the incredible part of watching that song live was like the actual just sort of palpable fear and anxiety that you could get coming off of Randy is whether or not he would 
hit that note. And then whenever he did, it made it so much more triumphant and joyous and exuberant. So yeah, I, I, I miss that from, you know, watching those old concerts when he would sing that song is is a real highlight of, of anything Eagles related for me. Now, moving over to the Don and Glenn side, I think a common theme of our Eagles episodes is that while Don and Glenn were often assholes and probably hard to deal with if you were in a band with them, I think that they were usually correct in terms of their instincts in guiding the Eagles forward. You know, they started out with the idea of being like a real band, but, you know, Don and Glenn came up with the strongest material, and they also, I think, had the vision of like how to bring the Eagles forward. They were ultimately right, I think, in guiding them out of country rock into more of like an arena rock sound with Walsh and Felder. And I have to say that that's probably my favorite era, personally, and we're going to get into that more in our next episode. You know, I love all those Joe Walsh and Don Felder guitar solos, and uh, I'm excited to get into it in part two of this series. You know, we mentioned the Big Lebowski earlier in the episode, and I, thinking of uh, Don handling Glenn Fry, I just always think of the the line when Lebowski's talking to his uh, increasingly uh, pushy friend, Walter Shubchek. Uh, he says, you know, am I wrong? Am I wrong? And uh, Lebowski says, you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. <laughs> and that kind of sums up how I feel about Don and Glenn. They're very rarely wrong. I, You know, I think musical choices overall, especially in this era, were in well, any era, really, were dead on. But they didn't always approach it in the best way. They weren't wrong. They could just be assholes. So that, that's my my final thought on them. So when we look at, you know, these guys together, you know, again, I have to go back to the Joe Walsh quote, you know, that there was a lot of anarchy at this time. But when you look back at it, it seems like a finely crafted novel. And, you know, for all of the chaos that existed, all the egos, all the strife, there is a certain kind of logic to uh, Lennon and Meisner being in the band when they were and then exiting when they exited. Like, I think they had perfect timing in the early 70s when it was more of a country rock era and those guys belonged in the Eagles. And then when times changed and the Eagles evolved, those guys left and some other people came in. And for all of the tension that exists in this band, you can't argue with like whatever you want to call it, the the logic, the fate, the finely crafted novel nature of it all. You know, it all comes together, I think, in this period of the Eagles. Yeah, I mean, it's rare that a band can so completely reinvent their sound, especially in such a short span of time, and especially when that prior sound was so successful. And you know, the Hotel California is absolutely their defining work. The success of their 1971 through 75 Greatest Hits album, which is the best-selling disc of the 20th century, is, you know, proof positive that the country rock era is just as significant. And I don't think that would have been possible without Randy and Bernie. Well, Jordan, talking about all this Eagle stuff, I can't believe this episode is already gone. <laughs> that one flew like an eagle by. <laughs> oh, no, no, damn it. That was Steve Miller. Shit. Well, that's okay. We have another installment of this Eagle series to make up for that. And I can't wait to get into part two of our special Eagles exploration. It's going to be great. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this discussion of beefs and rivals and bitter dissension inside the Eagles. We'll have more for you next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.